Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Our focus returns to Washington this week, where history is being made as the trial continues of former President Donald Trump over the attack on the US Capitol last month by a group of his supporters. Trump has been charged with inciting the mob that invaded the Capitol on January 6th, leaving five people dead and interrupting the certification of Joe Biden as the 46th president. If that's not an impeachable offence, then there is no such thing. Later in the podcast, we look back at the revolution that toppled the Egyptian dictator Hosni Mubarak 10 years ago and review what's happened since. But first, it's to Washington, and our correspondent, Suzanne Lynch, has been following Donald Trump's impeachment trial. Suzanne, as with all trials, we have to be careful about making definitive assessments until we've heard all of the evidence. But how would you say this trial is going so far? Yeah, well, what we have seen uh, since it opened on Tuesday is uh, the two sides, the prosecutor, if you like, which are the nine House impeachment managers who were appointed by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to manage this trial on behalf of Democrats. They're setting out the prosecution case against Donald Trump. And then we have uh, Donald Trump's legal team, Bruce Castor and David Schoen, who are making the defence argument. It began on Tuesday with four hours of debate, followed by a procedural vote that kind of gave us an indication um, of how Republicans uh, may vote ultimately on the substance of this issue. We've had a few procedural votes since uh, Donald Trump was actually impeached last month because we do need to remember he was impeached already. He has become the second president uh, in U- the first president in US history to be impeached twice, regardless of whether uh, he uh, senators vote to acquit him or convict him this week. So it began on Tuesday, and we're expecting a very quick trial. Uh, there's a possibility that it could actually finish as early as this weekend, as Sunday. And Monday here is a federal holiday. It's President's Day. So there is some talk that it could go as quick as that. There had been a request by one of the Trump legal members, team members, that activity would cease after sundown on Friday. But he seems to have um, changed his mind on that. So it now looks like that the trial would be free to run through the weekend, uh, Saturday and Sunday too. Now, before we get into the detail of some of the dramatic evidence that was presented on Wednesday, the first full day of the trial, maybe Suzanne just expand a little bit on the process there. You referred to it there, just I suppose to remind people that the decision to impeach Trump, which is to charge him effectively, was taken at the House of Representatives. He's now on trial in the Senate. How is that trial um, being run and, and uh, how does the process work there? So impeachment is always a two-pronged process. Uh, the House of Representatives with its 435 members, they make a decision whether to impeach a president and then it goes to the Senate where the 100 senators effectively ask, uh, act as jurors in the trial and they decide whether to acquit or convict the president. It's also important to say, Chris, that there are very few impeachments in history. We've seen quite a few of them in recent years. We obviously already had a Trump impeachment and a Clinton impeachment. Uh, Richard Nixon resigned before his impeachment trial started as such. But it's supposed to be uh, something of a last resort. So that's one of the debates that we're seeing being brought up here by the Trump team, kind of on the periphery, but it is a point, you know, are we getting too used to impeachment and it's losing its power as a force? But yes, so after the January the 6th insurrection on the Capitol, Nancy Pelosi decided to move forward with impeachment. And unlike the first Trump impeachment, uh, which is now nearly exactly a year ago when he was uh, acquitted in that trial, that was about the phone call between Donald Trump and the Ukrainian president and his efforts to get a foreign power to effectively intervene in an election. 
even before he the, the the original vote to impeach him, the House spent weeks of inquiries and committee hearings in the House before it even held an impeachment vote. This time that didn't happen. The um, because of the timing, it was in January. Donald Trump was about to leave office on twentieth of January, and they pretty moved much moved very very quickly within a couple of days. And a week after the insurrection on the Capitol, they held an impeachment vote uh, on the on January the thirteenth, and Donald Trump was impeached. Um, now it now it then moves to the Senate, uh, and and what happened then was that as we saw in the first Trump impeachment, Nancy Pelosi effectively held on to that impeachment article against Donald Trump and delayed sending it it to the Senate, which which would trigger the next stage until the Senate kind of got its ducks in the row, if, if you like, and was ready for it. Um, and the big difference now is that Democrats are in control of the Senate. They weren't in control the last time. They're marginally, by the tiniest of margins, they have control of the Senate. So it fell to Chuck Schumer now, the Senate majority leader. It's his job, if you like, to decide how long the trial was, to negotiate with Republicans about behind the scenes to see if they could work together in any way. So it was quite interesting because the, the trial started on Tuesday, February the 9th. You know, over the weekend, there was still negotiations going on there about the shape and structure and timing of this trial. And we only really got the details of how it would work uh, on Monday. And even still, it's unclear. Um, there was a, a resolution passed in the House, a kind of updated one on Tuesday, or sorry, excuse me, in the Senate, which, which kind of sets out the timetable, if you like. But even there, it still allows room for uh, either side to call witnesses. So if they decide to call witnesses, that will be later in the process. That might be Friday or Saturday. Well, that would, you know, elongate the process completely. You would have witnesses called. Um, it seemed we were getting suggestions from both sides off the records that that won't happen. But, you know, it's still not exactly sure how this trial will proceed every single day and when then, as a result, when, when it will end. And it's worth bearing in mind just quickly, I mean, most of our listeners will be aware of this, but that even though the Democrats have control of the Senate, it doesn't mean conviction is likely because they need a two thirds majority there. Yes. So um, the, the rules are that they need two third majority. That's 67 votes. Democrats have 50 votes, presuming that all Democrats and Democratic aligned senators uh, will vote to convict Donald Trump. That means they would need 17 Republicans to vote with them. I mean, this was the issue, say, for example, in the Nixon uh, case, even though, as I said, it didn't get to impeachment. He was told by Republicans that he, he didn't have the votes, that his Republican, a mass of Republicans were going to vote against him. In this case, it seems that there are insufficient numbers. There are not 17 votes. Republican votes who will vote to convict Donald Trump. Now, only one Republican the last time voted to impeach him, and that was on one of the two articles against him. That was Mitt Romney. This time, he is likely to be joined by at least five, six, maybe more um, more senators, perhaps even Mitch McConnell, the top Republican senator. Uh, so far in the procedural votes that we've held, which gives a good, it's kind of like a test vote, he has voted, you know, with Republicans. He hasn't voted against Donald Trump, but I think he's keeping his powder dry. Could have a surprise vote there by him, perhaps he might vote to convict Donald Trump on this, but it looks highly unlikely that enough Republicans will be there uh, to vote to convict the former president. Now, you mentioned, Suzanne, they're the Democrat House managers, and these are the Democrat members of the House of Representatives who are presenting the case against Trump in the Senate. How have they performed in that role so far? Well, they have been, quite frankly, they've been excellent. They've been flawless. And actually, um, again, comparing it to the last impeachment where we had Adam Schiff, who, who at the time, you know, seemed very good and, and there were a different team of impeachment managers. This team of impeachment managers seems to be completely on top of its game. Now, it is an easier case to prosecute because it was much more difficult to argue about an abstract phone call uh, between Donald Trump and the Ukrainian president, for example. Whereas now, you know, this is an extraordinary situation where the actual uh, evidence 
and the case that's being prosecuted actually took place in the very building where the jurors are sitting. This was an assault on the Capitol. And the 100 senators who are acting as jurors were witnesses to the case themselves, to the events themselves. They were there uh, during the assault on the Capitol. So in, in a way, this story has got that narrative power that, that that's just inherent in the topic, the way it didn't have the last time. In saying that, the nine uh, impeachment ma- managers are, are, are excellent. Um, the three, on the first day in particular, uh, we heard from three of the top, even though there's been nine, uh, three of the top uh, law impeachment managers. Jamie Raskin, he's the lead impeachment manager and he's very much uh, in control of this. He's, he, he opens the proceedings each day. Um, he has a very sad personal story. His son, uh, he lost his son to suicide just at the end of December. And he spoke on the first day about burying his son and then having his daughter there on January the 6th with her husband. And, and their fear and, and, and how he described how terrified they were that they thought they were going to, to die, essentially, at this event. So Jamie Raskin is the top, uh, the, the House impeachment manager, like a lot of his colleagues, is a lawyer, was a lawyer before he joined Congress. He was actually a professor of constitutional law for 25 years before he moved into politics. Then Joe Neguse from Colorado, he is excellent. Uh, he, he's, he's, I think, a rising star of the Democratic Party. He was the second impeachment manager to speak. And then, then David Cicilline from Rhode Island on Wednesday, then uh, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. So uh, they, are, they are very well prepared. Uh, they are using a lot of video and audio and text message um, and tweets and um, are really delivering a very strong prosecution case. Now, the video evidence they presented on Wednesday was certainly very dramatic. But did we learn anything new about the events of January 6th? There was some new element to it. Um, So during the Wednesday session, it began at noon and really it kind of gained momentum as the day went on. And I wonder, is this a clever scheduling ploy by Democrats? Because it was just in the evening, you know, around five or six o'clock in the evening when many Americans might be finished their their work day at home, that they might tune into this, that it really got dramatic. And they began showing video clip uh, evidence. Much of it unseen before from the events uh, of January the 6th. We're going to try and get compliance, but this is now effectively a riot. 49 hours declaring it a riot. So it was body cam footage from some of the police officers. It was surveillance video from inside the Capitol. So we did see some new uh, new clips and new angles on what had happened on January the 6th. For example, uh, there is a clip of Mike Pence and his family being evacuated by officers. You can see Vice President Pence and his family quickly move down the stairs. The Vice President turns around briefly as he's headed down. We then learn how close they were to the rioters who at that point are breaching the Capitol. We, another point we see a kind of a heroic Capitol police officer, Officer Goodman, um, switch, telling Miss Mitt Romney, who, who is walking down a corridor with a staff, to run the other way. And we see Mitt Romney running because um, a mob is nearby. We also see another kind of terrifying scene where you see a line of um, House members being brought out of the chamber and a, a, a guard pointing a gun to a rioter who's spread-eagled on the ground, um, just feet away from them. And then it's, I think, what the most effective part of the video footage that we're seeing here is it's not just the visuals, which I think people are familiar with, but it's just the audio is so um, aggressive and so threatening. We've got people shouting expletives, charging at the at the doors of the Capitol. And it really, I think, recreates the horror of that day for people. Just a cacophony of noise that also accompanied this very visual attack on the Capitol. 
One thing I think, Suzanne, that has become clear through the footage we've seen both at the trial and elsewhere is that the siege on the Capitol did begin before Donald Trump was finished speaking that day to his supporters on on January 6th. The Proud Boys, for example, that particular group, they had made their way to the Capitol building before Trump was even finished speaking. Is that the difficulty maybe for the Democrats, for the prosecutors? The case that they have to prove is that Trump actually incited the invasion and it wasn't just a, a coincidence of events, if you like. Yeah, I mean, this is the, this is the, the the nub of the issue. Um, what Democrats have tried to do, and it was quite effective, if they're trying to link the January 6th violence directly to statements that Donald Trump made. So, yes, they're using quotes he said on the uh, during his speech on the Mall that morning, but they're also linking it back to quotes uh, he made in the weeks and months beforehand. And I think what, what is quite clever is that they're linking, they're saying that the January the 6th assault in the Capitol was about people not accepting the election that they went in. It was the day. It wasn't just a random date, January the sixth. January the sixth was the day that Congress was meeting to certify the results of the election, and then they use some of the clips and the audio from the day to show that a lot of those protesters were saying, you know, we want this is our house. Donald Trump won the election. You know, hang Mike Pence. He is certifying this election result, and actually Donald Trump won. So they're saying that is the reason that that was the motivation behind this January the sixth attack. And then they said it was quite clever on Wednesday. They went back to all Donald Trump's uh, Trump's comments on this, saying that he started sowing election doubts back in the spring. And they're saying that there was at one point, uh, Jamie Raskin says, you know, this seemed like a day of madness to us. But actually, um, there was method in this madness that, um, you know, it it wasn't like that it was um, he was the insider chief that he was he saw this coming. He said he wasn't remotely surprised by the violence. So they're trying to set up a premeditated um, uh, effort by the president who encouraged violence throughout the months leading up to this. Um, and never spoke out to stop violence when it happened. So in that sense, it wasn't. It, w- it was quite clever. It was a strong argument uh, that many people thought. However, as you say, the problem there now is going to be for Republicans. Uh, and Donald Trump's legal team made this point on the first day. You know, th- emotionally, you may look at this and feel horrified, and so do we. But that is a different question. It's the question if, uh, is we that that is being posed here, which is, did Donald Trump? directly incite this violence. And during a break in the proceedings on Wednesday, Senator Ted Cruz, who has been a, a staunch Trump ally, he said, um, you know, well, the prosecutor is there, spent a great deal of time focusing on these horrific acts of violence, but the language from the president doesn't come close to meeting this legal standard for incitement. So that is likely, that is the, the key issue, that they can argue that, that Republicans tell, can tell themselves, look, what happened here was awful, but they, they don't believe there's enough evidence to say that Donald Trump himself was the reason why this violence erupted there. Now, we've yet to hear the case for the defence made in detail, but we did get a preview in the opening statements made by the former president's legal team. It's fair to say they didn't earn rave reviews. That's true, Chris. The word I've been using is subpar. Um, and I was writing about this saying I was when the first lawyer, Bruce Castor, got up to speak. Members of the United States Senate, thank you for taking the time to hear from me. My name is Bruce Castor. There was a moment, a very brief moment for a few minutes. He had the glasses and the, the kind of stately presence. And I was like, maybe he's a kind of small town lawyer here on the national stage, is actually going to really command this floor, this great Senate chamber. I am the lead prosecutor, lead uh, counsel for the 45th president of the United States. 
But as I wrote, you know, it, he's not, he was no kind of Ashka's Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird. I was an assistant DA for such a long time, I keep saying prosecutor, but I do understand the difference, Mr. Eskin. <laughs> Within five minutes, it became very obvious that this was someone who was kind of buying time. And the, and the reason I'm saying this is that in an extraordinary moment, he spoke for 50 minutes, five zero minutes on the floor. And towards the end, he actually kind of admitted that he and his colleague, David Schoen, had changed their strategy after hearing the prosecution's case because it was so well done. I'll be quite frank with you. We changed what we were going to do on account that we thought that the house manager's presentation was well done. So it was an extraordinary moment where he was admitting, admitting they got caught off guard. So he spoke for 15 minutes, was very meandering, never really made a point. Um, now, when his colleague David Schoen did stand up then and then spoke for another hour or so, he was much better. He was much more focused. He was much more confrontational. And he, he argued the key point that due process had been ignored in the rush to judge judge the former president. Um, that, you know, that he needs to be given due process here, that the whole process um, was, was unfair, was flawed. And he kind of got back which is, to their key argument, which is not so much the substance of the of the case, it's the uh, constitutionality of the process that uh, they argued that presidents should not be impeached after they leave office. Um, and that's what they are probably going to argue when they get back up to make their more lengthy defence uh, later this week. But no, I mean, even Republicans came out of the room and criticised uh, criticised them. You know, John Cornyn of Texas said, oh, he just rambled on and on, the first guy. Um, Bill Cassidy was a Republican who actually changed his vote from the procedural vote the previous day and said, look, compared to the other side, the Trump lawyers were unfocused. They avoided the issue. They talked about everything else except the issue at hand. And um, and there are reports that Donald Trump himself was furious looking at the performance of the legal team. But of course, this legal team was just put together days before they were obliged to file a legal brief, the first brief in the case last week. He had Trump had already fallen out with a team of lawyers he had retained based in South Carolina. Um, lots of reports about why that might be. There were some reports that Donald Trump was uh, was demanding that they make the case that the election was rigged. But there were also reports that it came down to money, that he was not prepared to sign a letter of intent stating that they would be guaranteed to get paid. Um, so, you know, they've time now, the two lawyers, to, you know, get their act together before they make the more lengthy defence. And it is notable that David Schoen, the slightly better performer, if you like, he has been doing the rounds of uh, conservative media here. He's been on TV. He seems to be doing more of the PR around it, if you like. So I would suspect that we'll see more of him rather than Bruce Castor when they take the floor, uh, most likely on Friday, to make their lengthy defence. Now, Donald Trump has been booted off Twitter, so we're denied the running commentary that we might have expected from him as the trial proceeds. But you mentioned there that it's been reported that um, he was very unhappy with his legal team's opening presentation. I suspect, Suzanne, I wonder, do you agree that the, the thing that would have enraged him most maybe was the explicit acknowledgement by Bruce Castor that the November election was fairly won. Yeah, exactly. They At one point, Astor says about the, in this rambling 50-minute monologue, he talks, I think he's trying to make the point that, um, you know, saying to Democrats, look, you may feel you want to bring this case now, but the tables will turn and someday Republicans will be in power and they can do the same to you. I think that was the kind of case he was trying to make that was very partisan. And at one point he talks at length about the fact that Donald, you know, Donald Trump lost the election and he, he keeps laboring this point. Um, and one can almost feel this is exactly um, something that would enrage Trump himself. 
uh, why is he saying that? So that that was just one example of how he seemed to be kind of going off script completely. Because don't, and not only Donald Trump thinks that. Don't forget that a significant number of members of Congress, even after the assault on January the sixth, people may remember the Senate then reconvened, the House and Senate reconvened to continue their work of certifying the result. At that point, several senators uh, voted in favour of this idea that the election result was wrong in certain states. So he's actually saying it to the very jurors he's trying to convince, he's trying to rub it in that actually, no, uh, Donald Trump did lose this election kind of fair and square. So it seemed a kind of a bizarre way. And of course, the other thing that we know about Trump is that he's a TV guy. You know, he he likes the theatre uh, of the television, you know, the the two lawyers behind the desk and then taking taking the stand, if you like, very much like the optics of The Apprentice. So he likes, he, he, he values what people look like, uh, how they perform on TV. So he will not have been happy with this performance, particularly by Bruce Astor. And I, I'm, I'm being charitable about David Schoen. He was better, but he, he, you know, he was nowhere in the in the same league as the Democratic prosecutors who in this impeachment were particularly strong. Now, you mentioned there that we have an indication, if you like, of the potential level of Republican support for for convicting Trump because we've had these procedural votes and the last vote being on whether the trial should go ahead at all in the first place. Does the fact that Bill Cassidy from Louisiana, who you mentioned there, the fact that he did change his mind and vote to allow the trial to proceed, does that indicate that some Republicans might still be for turning if the evidence against Trump is strong enough? Well, I think it's it's quite interesting. So what's so interesting about this trial is, I mean, obviously, there's the obvious point to make that the Republican Party is in something of, of a disarray at the moment since the departure of Trump, because you have a split. You have people like Liz Cheney. She's a, a kind of a conservative, well-known Republican who's in the House, and she voted to impeach Donald Trump. And ever since, she has been sustaining a backlash from her party for doing so. So there's been quite a public, ugly battle within the Republican Party about where they are, who they are as a party after Trump. But I think the difficulty is that with this impeachment trial, the the Republican senators, 50 Republican senators, are now going to have to go on the record with a vote on this, um, which they don't really want to do at this point. You know, so they could fudge it before or they could make, they could try and keep both their constituents happy and, you know, main, more mainstream Republican happy. Now they're going to have to, you know, put their money where their mouth is and, and cast a vote either, either way at this trial. Um, and particularly some of them are facing re-election in 2022. And I really think this vote is something that could kind of go with them, a bit like in a very different context, that people's vote in the Iraq war still haunts people like even Joe Biden. Um, I could see this being something that the, obviously that their rivals are going to use against them if they vote against Donald Trump and Donald Trump is, is popular in their state. Um, but I do think, I mean, that what's happening at the moment, which, which again is fascinating, is that there seems to be a split between Republicans in Washington and Republicans in the real world in America. Over the last few weeks, we've seen these extraordinary battles in places like Arizona, uh, in Wyoming, Liz Cheney's home state, um, which in Michigan, which in Arizona, for example, the, the Arizona local Republican Party censured uh, Jeff Flake and Cindy McCain, the wife of John McCain, who are seen as moderate Republicans because basically they don't believe they, they're pro-Trump enough. So there's been a real, you know, the, the right wing of the party is really on the ascendant in certain states in the country. So Liz Cheney, for example, in Wyoming, um, Matt Gates, who's a young congressman from Florida, he actually flew 
to Wyoming in the in recent weeks to have an anti-Cheney march, is all you can call it, outside the state capital. Um, he's a very much a Trump supporter and calling on people of Wyoming to send, you know, send Liz Cheney, don't vote for her again. So um, as I say now, it's, it's a conundrum for for Republicans. You mentioned Bill Cassidy. He's the one senator who's already changed his mind. But as soon as he did vote with Democrats the other night, he got a backlash from his local party in Louisiana, um, who are now, uh, some of them dubbing him Psycho Bill. Uh, and he, it was interesting over the last few days, you can see him physically grappling with the evidence in front of him. He looks kind of distressed at some point. Um, and he said it's a matter of conscience. So, you know, he is obviously someone who might vote to change, change their mind on this and vote to convict Donald Trump. I think though the most interesting person to watch will be Mitch McConnell. He's now the Senate minority leader, the top Republican in, in the Senate. But again, people, you know, we need to remember that just before the assault on the Capitol, as in an hour before, half an hour before, Mitch McConnell got up on the Senate floor and gave a really, really strong speech saying, Donald Trump lost his election. He needs to accept it. We need to accept it. He's been you know, spewing lies to his supporters. He, he very, very strongly broke with Donald Trump at that point. Now, in the test votes we've seen so far, he's staged you know, with his Republican pack. But I don't know, it's a possibility that he could move to convict Donald Trump. Maybe I'm being naive about that. But again, it's real politic. Mitch McConnell had just won re-election in November in his own state. And senators only face re-election every six years. He's, you know, an elderly man. He may not run again. So he doesn't have the pressure of an election result, an election to run in 2022. So it may give him an out to vote against Donald Trump. And even if, Suzanne, only a handful of Republicans vote to convict, let's say it's five or six, well short of the 17 needed, that's still a massive stain on Trump's legacy, isn't it? Because it does mean that he'll have been impeached for inciting a, a riot at, at the Capitol and a majority of the Senate would have voted to convict him. Yeah, I think so. It'll be a bipartisan vote and it'll show that enough people were there to, to convict him. I mean, and the other aspect to this is, um, which I didn't mention when we were discussing earlier, the impeachment process itself. Also in the Constitution, there is um, a clause that allows the Senate, if they vote to impeach a president, to, de- to then hold another vote which would prevent uh, the official from ever running again. And that only needs a simple majority. So in the throes of the January the 6th riot, after the impeachment, there was a suggestion that maybe people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, who are Trump acolytes, that they actually might be encouraged to vote to convict him because they could then vote, then the vote would take place to allow him never to run for office again. And they would take Trump away from the election battle in 2024 and give them a clear shot of the presidency because we know that both those men do see themselves as possible presidential candidates. However, that doesn't seem to be happening. Both Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz have more or less indicated this week they're going to vote to acquit the president. So I think, you know, if if you'd had some of those, a core group of those kind of pro-Trump people who, for their own political reasons, were prepared to, 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 you know, leave Trump out to dry, and we could have seen a heave against him, that looks unlikely now. Um, So no, I mean, he's not going to, he's, he's going to be acquitted. But you're right. I mean, it is it is a stain on him. But then other people would say this was such an extraordinary event that happened. And Trump's uh, behavior was so appalling. And his behavior in not accepting an election result was so appalling that if this isn't enough to encourage Republicans to vote against him, what is? But then just just to add to that, this is what's quite clever about the Republican strategy here. What we will probably see from Republicans is that they're going to say, look, 
we're not, our issue is not with the, with the substance of the claims here, it's with the process. So they're going to hide behind this cloak of the constitutionality argument, which is this whole process is flawed. You can't impeach a president who is no longer in office. That's why we're voting against the whole process. Rather, and that's, this, this allows them to escape confronting and debating the core issue, which is the charge that Donald Trump incited the events in the Capitol. Okay, Suzanne. Well, we'll continue to follow your reports and analysis of the impeachment trial over the coming days. Thanks a lot for that. Now, on February 11th, 2011, after 18 days of protest at Cairo's Tahrir Square, Egypt's president, Hosni Mubarak, stepped down, ending his 30-year reign. Ten years on from Mubarak's toppling, what remains of the revolution? Producer Jennifer Ryan spoke to Africa correspondent with the New York Times, Declan Walsh, about what life is like for Egyptians now under President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi and why Tahrir Square, the site of many protests in the country's history, is a very different place today. My name is Declan Walsh. I'm the Chief Africa Correspondent with the New York Times and I was previously the Cairo Bureau Chief. Tahrir is this huge plaza in the middle of Cairo, uh, right beside the Nile. It's about 150 years old, and for about the last century, it's been at the heart of successive uprisings by ordinary Egyptians against the people running the country. So in 1919, there were protests against British colonial rule that precipitated the British exit a couple of years later. And in the 1970s, there was a whole series of uprisings or riots, demonstrations in Tahrir against Egypt's rulers over various issues. For instance, the failure to recapture the Sinai from Israel in the early 70s. And then in 1977, the then president, Anwar Sadat, uh, cut subsidies to bread. And that, again, triggered bread riots across the country that were centred in Tahrir. So it's this location that has always been at the heart of struggles between Egyptians and their rulers. It's been a place that has made some Egyptian rulers. It's also been a place where some rulers like Hosni Mubarak have met their Waterloo and been ousted. So on January 25th, which is a national holiday, protests erupted in Egypt. Um, hundreds of people flooded into Tahrir Square. It's police day in Egypt, but they used this occasion to protest against the police. Um, this was also coming on the heels, of course, of the protests that had been taking place in Tunisia over the previous weeks and which had resulted in the Tunisian president uh, being ousted from office and forced into exile. So the protests in Egypt caught fire in a way that few people expected. Uh, the protesters clashed with the police but held their ground in Tahrir Square. And that was the start of 18 days of clashes between people who flooded into the square to protest against Hosni Mubarak and the authorities and culminated in the ouster of Hosni Mubarak the following month. President Mohammed Hosni Mubarak has decided to waive the office of the President of the Republic and instructed the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces to run the affairs of the country. The challenge for the revolutionaries who ousted Mubarak was to convert that uprising, that, that win, into a peaceful and a stable transition into a democracy. And that proved to be 
much more difficult than it might have even appeared in the beginning. The military has served patriotically and responsibly as a caretaker to the state and will now have to ensure a transition that is credible in the eyes of the Egyptian people. That means protecting the rights of Egypt's citizens, lifting the emergency law, revising the Constitution and other laws to make this change irreversible, and laying out a clear path to elections that are fair and free. The military ran the country for the next 15 months. During that time, a series of elections were uh, organized, uh, parliamentary elections and presidential elections. But the forces which had been at the forefront of the protests in Tahrir and triggered the ouster of Mubarak couldn't agree on a single party or on a single candidate to fight those elections. So those revolutionary forces, if you like, were divided. And that paved the way for the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, which had been the main opposition party during Mubarak's reign, to sweep the board in the parliamentary elections and ultimately to win the presidential election. So in 2012, a leader of the Muslim Brotherhood called Mohamed Morsi became the president of Egypt, but he only managed to stay in power for one year. Egypt's first democratically elected leader has been overthrown by the country's armed forces. President Mohamed Morsi has reportedly been moved to an undisclosed location. And that culminated in a second wave of public protests, again in Tahrir, in June of 2013, that in turn paved the way for the military to take over directly uh, about a week later and install Abdel Fattah al-Sisi as the, effectively as the leader of the country. And then he very quickly moved to consolidate his power. There was another presidential election about a year later, uh, but not a serious vote, um, which, you know, Sisi won with an overwhelming majority. And since then, there's been a whole series of elections, effectively sham elections, um, that have confirmed Sisi in power. And just last year, he amended Egypt's constitution so that he'll be able to stay in power at least until 2030 uh, and quite possibly longer. There is no doubt that President Sisi is very much in control of the country at the moment. Uh, the military and the security forces have an incredibly tight grip on politics, on the free press, public life in general in the country. So there's very little criticism. There's no political opposition. But I think, you know, if you look beyond that, you see an economy that is fragile, I would say, or brittle. Um, it, you know, depends on external factors very heavily for success. Egypt borrows a lot of money. Certainly, CC brought investment into the country. Um, he has powerful patrons among the oil-rich Gulf states particularly Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. So those countries provided um, tens of millions of dollars or even more to his government to prop it up in the early years because they, they were hostile to the Muslim Brotherhood. And in recent years, he has taken loans from China. He's allied with Russia. He was a, a, a close political ally of Donald Trump as well. President LCC has been somebody that's been very close to me from the first time I met him. CC at the same time has introduced a lot of radical changes, really. He slashed the subsidies that so many Egyptians
nations have depended on for electricity, fuel, water. The, the, the number of Egyptians living in poverty has actually increased. So it is a big country with a rapidly expanding population, a whole series of challenges and problems that go with that. And if anything, what happened to Hosni Mubarak, a ruler that few people thought faced any serious challenge just weeks before his ouster, shows that it's very hard to predict how these things will go. Tahrir Square looks quite different now compared to when the revolution took place 10 years ago. It's been under renovation for the last year. President Sisi has worked very hard over the last seven years, really, to efface any trace of the 2011 revolution or even the protests in 2013 that brought him to power. So the graffiti has been wiped from the walls and in its place he has erected a monument that he's brought from the archaeological sites along the Nile. There's a, a giant obelisk now that has risen in the middle of Tahrir Square. There's a lot of fancy lighting but it's also now a place where few Egyptians really would dare to hang around for very long. There's a huge security presence. Even taking a photograph in Tahrir Square can be problematic. Uh, someone can come up and challenge you if they think you're a journalist or a regular Egyptian. So it's become this place that is still, I think, very steeped in history and in the identity of Egyptian for a lot of people. But it's not a place where anyone dares to linger for long at the moment. That report was by producer Jennifer Ryan. Thanks again to Jennifer, to Declan Walsh and to Suzanne Lynch. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.